1: Hello everyone and welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you can possibly think of, has its own history, like pogo sticks, zebras and armpits. Oh, I
2: think we've done zebras, Sam, but I don't (laughs) think we've done armpits. No, I I think we should. (laughs) Definitely do armpits. However, for today, we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining very carefully how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam, who knew, and these may be some of our upcoming episodes, who knew that the history of uncles is in fact all about the reign of Edward VI, that Tudor boy king, or that the history of bathtubs Is all about prohibition in the United States. Mm, Very good. I'm looking forward to those. The man not
1: sitting opposite me who will help pilot us through this wonderful historical world. He's one of the country's leading professors of history. It's Professor Extraordinaire James Daybell. Hi, James.
2: Oh, Sam, hello. And you flatter me wonderfully. Uh, It does my ego no end of good. Uh, (laughs) The man not sitting opposite me is the famous historical adventurer who is socially distanced across town... Uh, he's my dear, dear friend, and I haven't seen him for so long. It's Dr. Sam Willis off of the television. Hello, Hello, Sam.
1: everyone. Hello, hello. Uh, It's another episode of our special homeschooling series for both kids and adults. I know there are lots of adults out there enjoying it. In each episode, we take a subject I bet you don't think has a history, and we prove that it does. And today, it's a good one, we're going to be doing the history of hacking, which for us is all going to be about code breaking during the Second World War. But before we talk about that, I think we need to brainstorm, James, how else we can think about the history of hacking
2: hacking has been around pretty much since the development of the first electronic computers uh, the term wasn't coined until the 1980s but there are all sorts of examples of people breaking in and cracking things and i've got a couple of favorite examples for you here one of the first comes from 1957 and it's a boy called joe ingresia uh, or nicknamed joy bubbles and this is a blind seven-year-old boy who supposedly had perfect pitch, a brilliant ear for music. And he discovered that when he whistled a particular note, the fourth E above middle C, which apparently is at a frequency of 2,600 hertz, he could interfere with the American telephone company AT&T's automated telephone systems and therefore he could hack the system uh, which is a practice called freaking spelt p-h-f-e-a-k-i-n-g and what he could do is he would whistle this and then he would be able to dial the number and another way in which he could do it was I don't know whether you did this as a kid but if when you had the old pulse dials where nowadays we're all, it's all digital but when you had the old sort of um rotary dials and when you picked it up it would go if you pressed down the the little uh click I can't think of the technical term for it but if you pressed it down a certain number of times if you clicked it clicked the hang up uh rapidly you tapped it uh you'd be able to tap a number uh out and supposedly get through free and apparently when he was a Student, this Joy Bubbles uh, at the University of South Florida in the late 1960s, um, he was able to place long-distance phone calls, um, basically through his through his whistling and also through this tapping. He was he was caught up with um, by the FBI uh, and gets into you know, a degree of trouble, uh, but it leads to a whole sort of career of people who are freakers, freaking. Uh, becomes a slang term uh, and it's an activity where people study, experiment and explore uh, telecommunications systems in order to break into it. The other thing that I wanted to talk about was the film that I saw when I was merely a lad, a film called War Games, uh, a brilliant uh, Cold War science fiction thriller. Uh, came out in 1983 with the brilliant Matthew Broderick in it. Uh, It was a huge, huge success at the time. Um, And basically, it was the idea, the conceit was that the US uh, Air Force, uh, who were in control of the nuclear attack, basically had invented this master computer. And then this high school kid and hacker um, uses his IMSAI 8080 computer uh, basically to access his the school district's computer system to change his grades. And then he goes on to hack into this supercomputer and starts off you know, effectively a uh, a sort of game of World War Three between the United States of America and Russia. So there we are. There's sort of it, it's sort of um, it's sort of. Hackers on the margin. So both young young people experimenting with technology. One is a sort of real one uh, about hacking into phone systems. The other is, of course, uh, is of course filmic fiction.
1: Yeah. So, um. Yeah. But, you know, the point is, is that is that the history of hacking and code breaking has been very attractive for publishers and for filmmakers for generations. And if you chose to do that, you could study purely um, the, the history of hacking and code breaking in film. I really like that story. And I suddenly thought I've watched this film. I didn't know what you were talking <laughs> about. And I suddenly I suddenly I suddenly thought, yes, yes, I, I know. I've got a vision of a kind of a black computer with red writing on it. I don't know quite whether yes. that's yes, the right yes, one. Is that yes, correct? Yeah. I think that's it, yes. Well, anyway, linked with technology, obviously, um, there's, a, there's a fascinating little story here. Um, it's to do with um, Marconi, Guglielmo Marconi, who uh, lived 1874 to 1937 and he transmitted what was... Uh, It is believed to be the first wireless telegraphic message in history. Um, And he uses electromagnetic waves to communicate using dashes and dots, Morse code. Um, And he sends uh, Morse code messages over several kilometres, And that's essentially the birth of wireless telegraphy. Uh, By 1901, he can send these signals across the Atlantic. He applies for a patent. He's granted it very famously. uh, Patent 7777 for the wireless telegraph. What's really great about this is that in the very early days of this, um, someone is doing a demonstration. A guy called John Ambrose Fleming is doing a public demonstration of Marconi's um, wireless telegraphy system. He's doing it in 1903 and he is making the point about how secure and private this wireless communication can seem. Little does Ambrose Fleming realise that there's a guy called Neville Maskelyne who's who's um become aware of this and has set out to disprove the fact that this is private telegraphy. And Maskelyne, he's a he's a magician, he's an inventor, and he's very interested in wireless telegraphy. And he manages to hack um the the demonstration, this public demonstration. And so while John Ambrose Fleming is uh, is transmitting a message in public. Um, Masculine hacks it and starts putting in the words rats into, into this conversation. And at the end of it, um, actually transmits uh, an insulting limerick. He says, there was a young man from Italy who diddled the public quite prettily. And that really <laughs> um, showed everyone that, uh, yes, well, wireless telegraphy was very important and very impressive, but it wasn't as private and secure as they were claiming. So a very important hack, a kind of an, an ethical hack, you might say, James, someone hacking to make make the point, make a make a really important point that it wasn't um, as as safe and fair. And in that same uh, area, um, there's another wonderful example from the Second World War. And this is to do with a guy called René Carmille. He's the controller of the controller general of the Vichy French army. And he has access to a punched card system, which is used by the Nazis at the time to locate Jews. Once they'd located them, then they'd ship them off to uh, internment camps and also death camps. Um, It's it's an early and actually very clever form of storing data, a punched card system. It's a a very stiff piece of paper which contains digital data represented by perforations in in the card system and it was used for a data processing um a great deal in the in the first half of the 20th century and especially during the second world war and what carmel manages to do is he delays um the the process of of uh, um Processing these punch cards by which the Nazis are tracking down the Jews, and um, because he's part of, the, he's got an office in the government's demographics department at the time, so he basically sabotages the the Nazi census. Um, and you know he's in in in, in some respects he's, he's he's not rewriting code, but or interesting a bug as we might understand hacking, but he he is very much sabotaging a um, a. Uh, a system which is based around technology so another wonderful example there but today we're going to be talking very specifically about hacking in terms of breaking codes during the second world war Um, I'm going to start out by reading um, a really important bit of code you ready James I'm ready Sam e backslash two x i n plus plus v dot hyphen hyphen a g dot n plus plus x hyphen hyphen n g a dot r g e n plus plus hyphen hyphen e plus plus v dot v b e t r plus plus c full stop v r e t e i l what does that hmm. mean? Well, I, I, I could
2: cheat because I have the transcript ah. in front of me. I will not, though. I will no, I will no, no, bluff no. and say, I I don't know, Sam. What does it mean?
1: Oh, I'm not entirely sure of myself.
2: <laughs> the
1: point about this is it's a, it is a intercepted radio transmission between a place near Berlin, a place called Golsan, and here's Gruppe Courland, which is the army group Courland, very important German army group, and it was made in October 1944. When 30 divisions of that German army group are actually become encircled and trapped in Latvia. Uh, this whole area is what the Germans refer to as Fortress Kurland. It was dated the 14th of February 1945. And the message actually, what it does is reports on the layout of field artillery assets in the area. Um, th- there's, a, there's another one here. It's basically from the same period. This one's translated. Um from the end of the war. You've got the Western Allies continuing their advance. So D Days happened, they're marching across um, the north of Europe and German high commands in Berlin under siege from the, the Soviets, the Red Army. Um, and they're outgunned, um, they're outresourced, and they're sustaining heavy losses. And the German troops are feeling increasingly helpless. There's a message from April 1945 refers to the German situation. Army Group B Day... Report for 11th of April on situation in the Ruhr Pocket in face of Allied attacks. It was possible to preserve continuity of front only by supreme efforts, with almost a third of the US combat forces employed on the Western Front. Allies poised for decisive blow against the army group. Situation strained to the utmost. Heavy German losses in killed and wounded. Army group to attempt to preserve a coherent front and gain time. For countermeasures from without. So there you are. um, A a very interesting and important message which was um, intercepted by the British towards the end of the Second World War. So what's going on here? Well, clearly we've got German codes from the end of the war which are intercepted and which are transcribed and transcripted and understood. And that allows the British to use that intelligence to and the Americans to their own advantage. Um, what is essentially the problem is that the Germans have something called the Enigma Code and the British managed to break it. And James is going to tell us all about it.
2: Yes, because this is the, absolutely the problem that at the start of the war, um, the, the Allied forces hadn't broken this, so they didn't know what was going on. So they, they put an awful lot of energy into solving it because the Germans had this Enigma machine, this code machine, as Sam was talking about. And this was invented by the German engineer, Arthur Scherbius uh, shortly after World War I. And the machine, and there are a number of varying types that were produced over the period, the machine resembled a typewriter. And if you can imagine it, it had a lamp board above the keys with a lamp for each letter. And the operator pressed the key for the plain text letter, in other words, a letter of the alphabet or a a number, the letter of the message. And then the enciphered letter lit up on the lamp board and it was adopted by the German armed forces between the wars, between about 1926 and 1935, historians think. And the machine contained a series of interchangeable rotors, which rotated every time a key was pressed. And what this meant, this was very clever, because what it meant was that you didn't get the same code or cipher coming out all the time. The cipher kept changing continuously. And this was combined with a plugboard on the front of the machine where pairs of letters were transposed. So these were two systems combining, which offered, and get ready for this, 103 sextillion possible settings to choose from. I'd never heard (laughs) of a sextillion. Um, I was brilliant at math as a young boy, but um, I'd never heard of this. Um, In in, in, in proper uh, numbers, this is 158962555. 217 to the one. That's the exact number. That's 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 twenty-three numbers. That's that's millions and millions and millions. I mean it's an extraordinary range of different combinations that you could put together. And this was really what made the Enigma machines so effective that they could be configured in all of these different ways. And the Germans were confident that this made the Enigma completely unbreakable. Now it's here in the story that we need to introduce a figure with the rather interesting name Dilly Knox. Now, Dilly Knox, otherwise known as Alfred Dilwin uh, Dilly Knox, um, was a British classicist, a classical scholar and papyrologist, one of those people who works on Egyptian uh, manuscripts and writing, uh, was uh, based at Cambridge uh, King's College and was... Importantly, for what we're going on to say, importantly, he was a codebreaker. In other words, he was somebody who was skilled in the art of cryptography. In other words, breaking codes. And he was one of the former British World War II codebreakers. And Knox was convinced that he could break the Enigma system. And what he did was to set up something called the Enigma Research Section which was made up of himself and some of the brightest young minds and older minds uh, in, the, in Britain, uh, including, and importantly, a man called Alan Turing, who will be well known to many of you uh, from the film The Imitation Game, where he's played brilliantly by the wonderful Benedict Cumberbatch. Now, this team worked in the stable yard at Bletchley Park. And Bletchley Park, uh, you can go and visit it today, is an English country house and estate in Milton Keynes. So it's in Buckinghamshire, and it becomes the epicentre, the principal centre of Allied code-breaking during the Second World War.
0: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods
2: The first wartime Enigma messages were broken by the British in January 1940. Um, And Enigma traffic continued to be broken routinely at Bletchley Park for the remainder of the year. The question was whether the Allied forces actually acted upon it. If they'd acted upon it, uh, the Germans would have known that they couldn't um, communicate secretly. Now, the next question is to answer how it was broken. And the way that Turing did it was to invent a machine called the BOM. And that's spelt B-O-M-B-E. Now, Turing's machine, which is a precursor to what we now think of as a computer, was able to speed up really quickly the rate at which intercepted messages were decoded, allowing Allied forces to react within hours rather than weeks. And the BOM machine... Envisioned by Turing, uh, enhanced by fellow codebreaker Gordon Welchman. And it was built by the British Tabulating Machine Company. Imagine that for a a, a title. Um, uh, It it built on the work of Polish mathematicians who had actually made very important breakthroughs much earlier than the British codebreakers. Although they're much less well known uh, to the kind of history that glorifies Bletchley Park and and, and the British codebreakers. Now, these Polish bomber machines succeeded thanks to a flaw in German encryption, which double encrypted the first three letters at the beginning of each message. And this was the key because it allowed codebreakers to search for patterns. Now, these codebreaking methods were based around the assumption that each message contained a crib, in other words, a known piece of German plain text at a familiar point in the message. In one example, um, to give you a sort of a, an instance of this, the Atlantic weather forecast, which was written in the same format each day, was crucial. Location detecting equipment in listening stations allowed codebreakers to find where a message was originated from, and if it matched up with the positioning of a weather station, it was likely that the word uh, in German weather forecast uh, Wetter vor uh, would be both present and in a similar place in every message. So there, that gave them a, a particular clue. They were expecting. Similar text in a similar place at a similar time. Now, another clue was that Enigma's inability to code a letter as itself. An S could never be an S. And that way, the encrypted message could be lined up with the crib that we've already talked about, until no letter lined up as itself. So that was another way in which you could do this. If you're doing this by hand, it becomes it's very slow work and would take you ages. And if you look back to Renaissance cryptographers during the 16th century, they were working for weeks on this kind of thing. The key here is that you have a machine able to process it much more quickly. And once you've got this information you're able to feed it into the, into the bomb machine and it enables you to process it very, very fast. Um, and now, thinking about these bomb machines, they are enormous. Now, each one was seven feet wide and six foot six inches tall and it literally weighed a ton. And they also had about 12 miles of wiring between them, linking it all up together. And get this, 97,000 different parts. Now, essentially, the Turing bomb was an electromechanical machine comprised of about 36 different Enigma machines, each one containing the exact internal wiring of the German counterpart. And if you watch the film or you go to Bletchley Park, you can actually go along and see this for yourselves. So once the machine is switched on, each of the three rotors moves at a rate mimicking the Enigma machine itself, checking on approximately 17,500 possible positions until it finds a match. And in this way, the bomb machine used logic to dismiss certain possibilities. And again, it's moving much, much quicker than people could do with pen and paper. And this method, though successful, still provided a number of possible correct answers for the German settings. So further work then needed to be undertaken in order to narrow it down to the right one. So it's a series of stages in this process. But with the help of a checking machine, the process could be repeated until the correct answer was discovered. Now, once the code was cracked, the workers at Bletchley could then set up an Enigma machine with the correct key for the day and reverse the code for every message intercepted. So there we are. Slight, very, very complicated. Um, uh, Sam, you're going to now take us through the path of a message yeah, and so the impact on the war. I'm just going to also just um, add that the Americans had one as well. And the British
1: shared their um, their bomber machine with the Americans, um, and uh, this happens in late 1942. And the American version was was um, developed in uh, Dayton by a guy called Joe Desh, and he set up a, a set up machine. And by mid 1943, he had his own prototypes running. Um, And they needed a bit of tweaking. But by December of that year, December 43, he's got 120 machines all around the country. And they end up doing an an immense amount of work and helping to crack um, lots of German naval traffic in particular. So it wasn't just the British. It was also the Americans as well. And the Polish. And, of course, James the Polish, who began everything, uh, these genius Polish mathematicians who are often forgotten. So the path of uh, an intercepted message uh, is very interesting, sort of understanding how it all worked. First up, these messages were obtained by uh, a service known as the Y-Service. It's a a chain of wireless intercept stations situated across Britain, but also in a number of um, overseas countries. You've got thousands and thousands of people here operating wireless machines. Uh, many of them civilians, but also uh, lots of uh, female wireless operators working for the women's branches of the uh, the navy, the Rens they were called R E N S, um, and uh, the air force, and also the ATS, the women's branch of the British Army. So what they're doing is tracking enemy radio. There are main sites uh, for the Royal Navy. They're at Scarborough and Flower Down near Winchester. Uh, the army bases are at Chatham in Kent, and the RAF is at Cheadle in Staffordshire. But I mentioned that they also had places overseas. Now, these are really important uh, because of the global nature of the war. Um, important British interception stations in Malta, in Cairo, in Palestine, and particularly for intercepting Japanese traffic at Abbottabad and Delhi in India, at Singapore, and um, also in Columba and Mombasa. There are also intercept operators based on ships and mobile army units and they're not only intercepting these messages and trying to work out what they are saying to each other but also identifying using um, radio direction finding equipment they can identify the locations of the people sending the message so that's stage one it's the interception then you've got this uh, process of decryption where these messages are sent to bet bletchley park they arrive by motorcycle courier or by teleprinter the various messages are then sent to the relevant sections so all german naval messages for example go to the naval section air force messages go to the air section Uh, Army and Air Force Enigma messages go to Hut Six, um, where the details of the message are taken down and indexed. So the first stage of this is taking down, literally taking, recording the message of what's going on and indexing it, so you can go back and you can search through. You can build up a huge archive of intercepted messages. Once you've done that, you can only begin to start doing the analysis and analyzing the communications as well. So. Um not only have you got to find out what you've got to record the message you've got to find out what it says, and then you've got to analyze it and try and understand exactly what's going on and even I suppose the point is, is that once you've decrypted a message, is that those messages don't necessarily make any sense, even when you actually know what it actually says, because they use lots of acronyms, lots of abbreviations. Um, There's also lots of information referred to in previous messages. If you haven't got those previous messages, it makes it very, very difficult indeed to find out what's happening. Um, You've also got to prioritise the messages. This is really important. And it's why this huge archival index of different army groups, the names of ships and of U-boats and Air Force um, sections, why it all matters, because... The message will refer to a particular part of the army, a particular operation and the people in Bletchley needed to know which one was at a crucial point, which message needed to be prioritised above the others and sent back to the army, navy or air force so that they could then act upon it. So it was a remarkably complex operation and it was very, very successful, had a huge impact on the war. Um, Once the the Enigma code is cracked, the British actually operate 211 different machines. They're all operating around the clock and it's it's estimated that at its peak, the bomb was able to crack 3,000 German messages per day. By the end of the war, it had cracked as many as two and a half million different messages. The intelligence that they got was certainly crucial to changing the war. The North Africa campaign provided crucial intelligence throughout the war. Also, it was very important in the D-Day campaign. The British were able to read Japanese diplomatic and naval and military attaché ciphers. Also, make that point there, it wasn't just the German code that they'd broken at Bletchley Park. In particular, with D-Day, the breaking of the ciphers of the German secret intelligence service allowed the British to confuse Hitler over where the Allies were actually about to land. And uh, ultimately, Hitler's decision to divert troops away from the Normandy beaches certainly helped to secure the invasion's success. There's a little quote here I'm just going to finish up with from General Eisenhower. The intelligence which has emanated from you, meaning the British, before and during the campaign has been of priceless value to me. It has simplified my task as a commander enormously. It has saved thousands of British and American lives. So there you are. Um, It was hugely influential in not just the sea war, but also in the army and also in the air force. Um, also bear in mind that it wasn't just the British who were intercepting, uh, intercepting the codes, but the Germans also had their own code-cracking operations, um, and a German radio intelligence post in the Netherlands managed to uh, crack the radio-telephone conversations between Roosevelt and Churchill. At the, in real time, at exactly the moment they were talking. Uh, the Germans actually broke the ciphers of every single nation they were fighting apart from Stalin's Soviet Union. So, fascinating stuff there, James, about code-breaking during the Second World War. Should we do a little, um, a little quiz to see if anyone's been paying attention? Oh, let's, Sam, um, let's. When did
2: the Germans first
1: start using Enigma?
2: Question two. The mathematicians who made the first breakthroughs in cracking the German code were not English. Where were they from? (laughs) This is a test of your
1: uh, numerical memory. In sextillions, how many possible settings were there on the
2: German Enigma machine? Goodness me, that's a tricky one. Number four, what was the name of Alan Turing's machine? Number five, how many miles of wiring did each machine have? Oh, that's good. Number six, when the British were working at their peak... How many German messages per day could be decrypted? Mm, Fascinating stuff. And what about a task for everyone, James? Okay, I've got two tasks. The first is impossible. It is to build a code-breaking (laughs) machine. The second more sensible one is to write a letter in code. And here's how you do it. What you need to do is you need to start off with something called a cipher alphabet. Now, write out on a piece of A4 paper or letter size if you're in the United States or a big sort of big piece of paper, um, write out the letters of the alphabet, 26 of them, uh, A to Z. And then you want to assign uh, either a number or a letter or a symbol or a combination of those to each letter. Now, If you are being even more tricksy, you can also put in some red herrings. In other words, some nulls. So you might have a few sort of rogue symbols that basically mean nothing. And then what you do is you write out your letter or your secret message using those symbols. Now, if you make a copy of this, you can give it to somebody else. Um, somebody else who may be living at another address and they can use the alphabet that you've got to decode your letter that you send to them so there we are have a fiddle around with some coding brilliant um <laughs> that's going to be fun uh, send us a coded message
1: please i'd like that
2: i go to text you in code Sam. <laughs> <today.
1: laughs> oh, oh joy um <laughs> thanks everyone for listening we'll be back again with you soon Do you please follow us on social media and online Um i'm
2: at dr sam willis and I'm at James Davell. The podcast is on At Unexpected Pod. We're also on Instagram and we are on Facebook as well. And we also have a website where if you go to it, historiesoftheunexpected.com, you will be able to see a landing page for all our homeschooling episodes. So you'll be able to see exactly what we've been doing and navigate to it with great ease.
1: Yeah,
2: very good stuff. Okay, guys, we'll be back again soon.
1: Cheerio. Bye-bye. Take care,
2: guys. Bye.